If you love the History Extra podcast and want to help us keep bringing you brilliant episodes, then please share it with a friend or a fellow history fan who you think might enjoy it. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. When we think of the Wild West... I think that many of us think of gunslingers, bar fights and cowboys riding across wide open plains. But was life on the American frontier really anything like the movies? In today's Everything You Wanted to Know episode, we're putting your questions on the subject to Karen Jones, Professor of Environmental and Cultural History at the University of Kent. Karen is an expert on the American West and her books include Calamity, The Many Lives of Calamity Jane which was published by Yale University Press earlier this year. Asking the questions was our production editor, Spencer Mizzen. Now, Karen, I'd quite like to start with quite a a wide-ranging question, but one which has showed up on quite a lot of our um, internet search queries, and that is, what was the Wild West? Can you define it? Um, When are we talking about? um, Which areas of the North American continent did the Wild West cover? That's actually a really good question, and it it's one that, on one level, is deceptively easy to answer if we think about dates and we think about places. But then when we start thinking about the meaning of the Wild West and its imagined presence, things get much more complicated and much more fuzzy. So I'll start with the, the easy bits, and then I'll mess it up and make it complicated, because um, history always does that when you study it. So when people typically talk about the American West, they're talking about areas west of the Mississippi River. So that's one definition um, to use that river as the marker. So it's a a huge territory of land, um, two million square miles or so of, of, of territory. Another way of looking at it is to define the West by uh, hydrology, by water, by rainfall. Um, so beyond the 100th meridian, there's less than 20 inches rainfall a year. So that's another way that people define it, because obviously, if you think about the Great Plains and the landscapes of the West, the deserts and the mountains, it's a it's typically arid. It strikes as really different to the to the eastern U.S., um, so broadly, then, if we're thinking about states today, we'd be looking at from the Pacific Ocean, um, from California north to Washington, and then on the other boundary, on the uh, eastern boundary, Texas through to the Dakotas, so the, the sort of the um, the, the prairies and the, and the Midwest. Um, again, so, so in, in a way, if you're thinking about environments, the Great Plains marks the beginning of the West and then the Rocky Mountains and, and the, the desert spaces. Now, this definition gets more complicated because if you're looking at, for instance, that 
that rainfall definition. Of course, as we know, the Pacific Northwest has quite a lot of rainfall, so that doesn't quite fit with the story. Um, if we're thinking about the frontier and, and conquest and, and mineral wealth and that kind of stuff, many people would put Alaska in to that story of frontier conquest. And of course, that's separate um, again. So you can see how things get get complicated. Um, states on the on the eastern borders uh, have have hybrid identities. So, you know, would you think of Texas as being in the west or in the south? So there's uh, concepts and definitions make for a co- the complicated fuzzy boundaries to what the west is geographically if you like uh in terms of thinking about time the most common date i think is is put at 1803 so the louisiana purchase so when the united states gets this massive land deal um uh, you know stretching from the mississippi over to the to the rockies and that's seen as the beginning of of american um, formal territorial ambitions, if you like. So that would be the beginning. Who did they buy that land from? So they bought it from the French. Um, and they they went to Louisiana to negotiate, hoping to get New Orleans. But the French were you know, tied up with issues and conflicts in Europe and weren't really thinking that North America was the future of, of things. And so basically presented them with this land deal purchase, um, which was, you know, seen later as one of the greatest land deals in, in history. Um, and it was, it, was a, it was an unintentional gain on behalf of the Americans, but ended up being really significant because, for instance, when Lewis and Clark, one of the um, earliest exploring parties or the earliest American exploring party goes west in 1804, They'd been planning this trip before with Thomas Jefferson as president. What the Louisiana Purchase does is mean that they're travelling on American soil rather than just travelling into the unknown. Um, so 1803, I think, is a, is a really important beginning date. Then the usual end date, if you like, for the Wild West is put as 1890 by most historians, because in 1890, the, Europe, uh, the, the US Census Bureau, um, who's, who's looking at data of settlement and population in the continent, they determine that the, the, the data marker that was used to define a frontier, and um, so a sort of pre-settled land, uh, was less than two people per square mile in population terms. And in 1890, there's there's no more space in the US, uh, in, in the West, to which that applies. Um, so that the the frontier is officially closed in 1890. And so that's your that's your two bookends. Um, again, what revisionist historians have done in 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 picking away at that chronology though is is dragged a story earlier to think about well if you're if you're really wanting to understand the history of the west you've got to think about indigenous communities and of course their story stretches back thousands of years the story of european explorers and fur trappers again takes us earlier uh, and then if you also look at some of the themes of conquest mineral extraction that kind of thing that happen after 1890 there's there's commonalities as well so again that it's a stretchy uh, temporal definition and that leads me on to my next question which was submitted by uh, Jessica Roberts on social media she wants to know what was the, what was the allure of the wild west why did so many settlers head west at this particular uh, period of time that's a really good question, and I think it it speaks to a great many things. The West is seen as a place of of adventure, of opportunity, uh, of escape. Um, principally, though, most people are going there because they think about economic betterment. So they're thinking about land, uh, they're thinking uh, about prosperity, and and they see that the. The West pre- presents and provides the best opportunity to do the best for their families um, in this era. So you can you can break that that down into a bit more detail when you look at the different waves of expansion. 
So the first wave of expansion um, from really the 1840s is where you see large numbers of family groups uh, in pursuit of land and farmland, particularly going to to Oregon. Um, that soon after that, or in along the, uh, around the same time as that, you obviously got people travelling to California for the gold rush um, from from 1848. So again, prosperity and, and, and economic gain of a different kind there in in terms of mineral riches. For other groups, the allure of the West is about finding freedom from from religious persecution the mormons probably the most famous example of that and I, I guess what unites all of these people is that sense of new start you know because it's also a place that's beyond the confines and some of the rules and regulations of of the east so it does attract people who are escaping situations for all kinds of of reasons escaping oppression escaping poverty um uh, escaping from the law and it, it it grows into this um imagined landscape of promise really that that seems to beckon all kinds of people um, from from all, from many different walks of life and, and from all over the world in the end. And how did their experiences live up to their expectations? That's, that's I mean, that's a tricky question in a way because you're dealing with so many people from all over the world who have really different experiences when they get to this place. So, you know, Cornish miners who go to the gold rush, um, uh Irish families, communities escaping the potato famine, um, emigrants from all over Europe who are escaping revolutions of 1848, um, failing farmers from the northeast of, of the US. So their experiences are, are really different. And some people do quite well, you know, because the promise of, of land um, and and economic improvement through hard work is is within the grasp of people but at the same time if you think about the mineral rushes uh the chances of really really making it rich um uh, are much more of an illusion than some of the advertising and some of the mythology presents uh, just to give an example with with farming for instance the homesteaders you know the the attraction of having your own land having your own property is is a really pervasive one um but much of this land is 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 quite hard to make profitable the homestead lots 160 acres are quite small when you're dealing with the environmental capacity of of, of this prairie landscape uh and so you know it's it's pretty hard life for, for, for the majority of people. Now, one of the primary images we have of the of the Wild West is, is of course, of the, of the cowboy. Um, and we have this image of this sort of archetypal, all-conquering American hero depicted uh, by the likes of John Wayne. I mean, how much does that match the actual reality? Mm. So this is this is a this is a critical question that that we we deal with in um in the university course I run on this and we sort of we look at the myth and the reality of, of the cowboy and in you know in Hollywood the cowboy is the the rugged exemplar of of the frontier and, and John Wayne probably the most famous uh, example of that but more recently Clint Eastwood um, uh, uh, and others who present that sort of swaggering all-American uh, masculinity survivalist um, uh, rugged abilities with with wood, woodcraft and horses and guns and all of that and and, and you know marked by the Stetson um, and this is you know this is the, the the Hollywood cowboy and of course you know this cowboys were historical figures and they did work on the cattle trails so they were very much connected to this this landscape. Um, but in reality, their life was re- very, very different from that presented in in Hollywood. So the the cattle kingdom really gets going after the American Civil War, um, where there's there's a convergence of different ranching traditions. Some from from 
from Mexico, so a sort of Spanish tradition, and then an Anglo tradition of of cattle herding, um, the the rounding up of of animals that have gone feral during the Civil War, and the movement onto the open range grasslands, and and so I guess the romance of this period is about freedom and movement and mobility, and and these characters are. You know, riding the range and driving these herds across large distances to the trailheads, um, and so there is a real sense of adventure and, and folklore around them at the time. And they, you know, there's a, a sort of a campfire culture, and they tell stories and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. But if anybody had had actually said to the cowboy at the time, well, who's the hero of the Wild West? Who's the hero of, 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 of your contemporary world? They would have probably pointed to surveyors and lawyers and bankers, you know, the people who are the real power brokers. Um, because at root, the cowboy was a wage labourer, um, uh, somebody who was at the mercy of, of the market, at the mercy of, of the ranch uh, owners um, at the mercy of weather and, you know, living a really pretty hard marginal economic existence, um, often malnourished and, and, and not very well paid, uh, usually young, overwhelmingly young men in terms of a demographic, and they would work for one or two seasons and, and then go on and do something else because it wasn't, it wasn't a career that had longevity in it because it was it was really really tough and it attracted all kinds of people um drifters uh you know people who had the kind of skill sets that that were, were were suited to to that world um but it's yeah the romance of it is 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 vastly exaggerated and of course when the open range ends in the 1880s the market collapses and, and there are really harsh win, uh, winters. Lots of cattle die. Well, really because of an environmental crisis that's brought on by the cattle kingdom itself because there's too many animals on the range um, to to be able to feed them all. Um, you know, the whole industry collapses and, and, it, and I guess that also contributes to its romance because it's part of a really particular moment in the history of the West between the Civil War and the invention of barbed wire and the fencing in of, of land. And so it's, you know, they're like, the, the cowboy's like the hero who dies young, I suppose. Now, you mentioned um, cattle just just then. And um, on social media, um, Jonathan Conn has submitted a question and he's asking, how great a crime was the, the, the destruction of the buffalo in the Wild West? Hmm. Well, again, it really depends who you ask. I mean, for us, looking back retrospectively, um, thinking about environmental sustainability, thinking about the Anthropocene, thinking about the impact of of humans on on the natural world, you know, this this was um, a pretty good example of the destructive capacity of of modern industrial civilization. You know, sports hunters went in there. Market hunters went in there using the railroads, um, using firearms and, and decimated animals which had been so common on the prairie uh, that they, you know, they covered the landscape all the way to the horizon. Anecdotes talk about how the early railroad trains had to wait for a day or two for these herds to cross the tracks. They were that prevalent. So the idea that, that this... This animal would be reduced to a few hundred in number is is pretty astonishing. It really shows the destructive capacity of of um, yeah of an industrial society that that is seeing animals as capital um, is also seeing them as obstacles to progress because of the kind of landscapes they want to create for um, other bovine animals, i.e., cattle. And, and, and also for um, agriculture. And of course, I guess the other criminal connection to this is the relationship between the bison and the American Indian, because the US Army makes a deliberate um, 
moved to get rid of, of these herds because the, the indigenous people subsist so totally on them. So you remove their key food supply, their key sort of spiritual animal, the key, the key source of um, all kinds of different products, and that that takes away the capacity of those people to resist colonial invasion, really. So in in those terms, um, I, th- I think many people would see it was um, pretty criminal as an act. Of course, at the time, for the um, American nation, this was progress, that the bison had to pass into history. Um, although it's it's true to say that there were key people who, who begin to talk in the 1870s and 1880s about conservation and need to preserve um, examples of these species, of uh, the need to preserve land areas so they can continue. Um, but it's, you know, it's a, it's a really important example of the environmental transformation of the West, the destruction of the, of the bison. And so would it be true to say that the Native American experience of the Wild West was generally a pretty miserable one? Well, I guess once the, once the Americans show up, um, it's, the picture's pretty bleak. Uh, in terms of their their capacity for for movement and capacity for coexistence, I mean, I, I guess early on there are uh, uh, signals that some sort of um, certainly some collaborative activity goes on, and 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 some some sort of uh, neighbourliness, even you know, some of the early travellers across the plains talk about. Uh, cordial interactions they talk about sort of paying paying to travel through territory um i mean i guess the the real problem comes when you get large numbers of of euro americans um seeking to appropriate land and resources um and of course bringing disease bringing alcohol uh into into environments where uh, disease resistance and alcohol resi- resistance is much much lower. So, yeah, I mean, and and I think just that inability of the the colonial mindset or the American colonial mindset to understand that people can live differently, and so that there's there's, there's just not even the well, there seems to be very little potential of being able to allow that different kind of existence to go on. Um, alongside the expansion of American empire. Sure. Okay, I've got a question here from um, Ado Mohammed on social media. And he asks, can you tell us a little bit about black cowboys and what proportion of the overall numbers that they made up? Mm, that's a great question, because, of course, if you're thinking back to that Hollywood image, the the... The cowboy is 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 always a white dude, and and um, and so that that in a way the traditional writing of the nineteenth century West in history um, w- was very much a story of 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 the heroic dead white men and what they did to to bring uh, you know the American nation into being, um, which is you know is it's an in, in incredibly fragmented view of and hugely problematic view um, of what actually happened um, at the time and and one of the I think one of the most exciting things about going back to this time with new eyes is the way in which historians have have found a much more diverse west and a much more interesting west of, of different people different communities different ethnicities and and, and all sorts of things uh, and and yeah so the cattle kingdom is a really good example of that this sort of hidden presence of of black cowboys who made up about 25% of of the cowboy fraternity and there are some famous individuals who who stand out in this history um a chap called um nat love who was an ex-slave from from nashville who went um went west after the civil war seeking seeking freedom seeking opportunity um and and you know i guess for people like him being a cowboy was was a fairly good option because they could do the job 
um, and there was lots of demand for the work. So it was, you know, so in that sense, it was a um, unsurprising that that twenty five percent of of cowboys were um, African American. Um, there was, so you know, a really important caveat, I suppose, here, in that those um, black cowboys were 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 treated quite poorly. They were party to discrimination, segregation in some of the the frontier towns. Um, you know, so that really problematic racial story in the United States is is mapped out onto the the landscape of the cattle kingdom. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. So violence becomes a an, an, an entertainment device, if you like, and that that so that history is is rewritten for the purposes of talking about what's passed into memory. So in a way, you can glory in the violent past because you're living in the civilized present. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring. The best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need indeed. Time flies. We blinked and 2024 is halfway over. What's something you've accomplished this year that you're proud of? Maybe you made it out of bed and to work every day. Or maybe you started shedding some old habits that were weighing you down. But even when you're making progress, life can feel like it's moving too fast. We can't slow time down, but we can give you a moment every week to hit pause, set intentions, and reset. Therapy is a guaranteed time to check in on how you're feeling, what you want to do more of, and what you want to change. Otherwise, it's easy to keep going through the motions without getting what you want out of life. BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone, or video call. You can start the sign-up process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Take a moment with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. Okay, you've, you've written a book about um, Calamity Jane. What was a female experience of the Wild West? I mean, how prominent mm. did they play? So again, this is another one of these cases where uh, a, a group of people has been written out of the histor- historical story, and you put them back in, and it makes it a whole lot more interesting and and relevant. So and again, it's hard to generalise um, about what what the female frontier was because there were so many different variants of it. But I guess the two the two sort of dominant stories here are one women finding the west as a place of emancipation and opportunity and adaptation so you know that if you think about it in practice that groups family groups um and individuals are, are, are traveling to a place where there's not an infrastructure of settlement so there's there's more latitude social latitudes and cultural latitudes so women end up doing jobs that they were unaccustomed to doing or they weren't permitted to do in the East. And and you see, um, for instance, entrepreneurial women doing a great number of um, domestic-related services, so boarding houses, cooks, laundry, prostitution, of course, as, as well as part of that story. So there are, there are places, and, and also in the world of homesteading, um one in ten homesteaders was um homestead claims was filed by a woman. So you could file you had to be the head of a household to file a homestead claim, but you didn't have to be male. So that opened up a whole realm of of opportunity for for women who ended up being really resourceful in 
um, making ends meet in in agricultural communities and and taking key roles in education and, and and some sort of civic offices as well. So there is a sense that the West provides opportunity for women. Uh, the we- Western states are the, are the first to give the vote to women, for instance. Um, and so that's a really important signal. Uh, but at the same time, there's a real sense in which those sort of strictures of um, conformity still play out. So you you get, for instance, examples of women on the plains who are really reluctant to cast off some of the usual roles or even usual um, attire because it it feels as though they're becoming uncivilised somehow. So there's a comfort and a contentment in 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 sticking with the familiar even when whilst we would see that as 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 fairly outdated and and problematic um so that that tension of opportunity and orthodoxy is there now there are examples though where the west does provide for um a whole range of people who don't fit the sort of usual domestic mould of 19th century womanhood to, to find a room and find space in the West. So, for instance, um, women dressing as men and going in pursuit of mining claims, that happened quite a lot, um, to the extent that some of the mining towns forbade claims to be made by women impersonating men. So you know, there's, 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 uh, and I think it's those sort of subcultures and those um, new stories of the West. They're they're still being written. There's still room to, to to find all of that in the 19th century experience. And what did you find most fascinating about Calamity Jane? I guess it was the way her her history, her actual biography as a as a historical figure how that interwove with her legendary status. Um, so they didn't, I wouldn't see her myth and her reality colliding in, in, in simple ways. I, I see them much more as swirling about. And, and sometimes she was able to uh, take command of that and, and sometimes she wasn't. So I think she's, she's a really interesting figure because she's so transgressive, you know, because she's, she's, a woman who's operating in a male environment. Um, she's claiming some of the tenets of masculinity, if you like. So being being uh, good with a gun, um, uh, being able to sort of subsist in difficult environments, doing a whole range of jobs that you wouldn't associate with women at the time. Uh, she, Yeah, she sort of contests our sense of, of conformity, in the story of women, or and although she's she's far from usual, I think the way she pushes those boundaries, you, you see that reflected in in many more women, even though they don't have the sort of celebrity status that that becomes attached to her. Um, and I think it's that celebrity status that also drew me to to write about her because it, it struck me that in trying to control her fame and in trying to sort of rewrite her story um, for popular consumption, she was really modern and, and she, she sort of speaks to that invention of fame that, that we see as a, a, you know, a part of our 21st century world is we can drag that way back to the 19th century. Sure. Okay, I've got a question from uh, Rhonda Webb on Facebook. She says, is it true that many people were drunk much of the time because the water was unclean to drink? Now, that kind of leads me on to an, another sort of broader question, is that how wild was the Wild West? And that's, that's a really good question. I like this question. Um, it's, and it really speaks to some of the myths and legends that have grown up around the Wild West and, and, and the, the sorts of um, things that have, have just become associations with it uh i mean the, the, i guess the the truth is is that when you when you look at uh, 
accounts, for instance, of overland travellers, they do talk a lot about problems of finding water. This is an arid environment. Um, They come across alkaline water, so, yeah, contaminated water, water that's saline, um, that's poisoned in some way, that's not not good to drink. So water is a hugely valuable commodity in in this region. Um, and, And, of course, things like typhoid and cholera and other waterborne diseases cause real problems for those who are traveling across the continent um you know in fact you know disease is much more of a a killer of overland travel uh, overland travelers than than any um indigenous people any sort of ambushes that again we we think of as the, the hollywood way um, so I wouldn't say that people, but having said that, I wouldn't say that in the, in the towns as they grew up, people drink because the water is, is, is unclean. But at the same time, there was a real drinking culture in some of these settlements, particularly mining towns, railroad towns, cattle towns, where um, there's a really high percentage of young uh, single men or certainly men that are traveling on their own that make up the composition of these towns and and drinking and saloon culture particularly whiskey becomes a really kind of critical part of the the entertainment landscape of these places so how dangerous were these places i mean was mm. it, i mean were they teaming with uh gunslingers who you know shoot you down at a drop of a hat or is that just completely- yeah so and this is so this is the the question of how wild w- was the wild west and um and again the, this is this is where hollywood and entertainment and folklore have a lot to answer to because you know you look at your average western movie or your wild west show or your the pulp fiction um dime novel um about the west and there's there's gunfights on every corner and it's the 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 law of the gun is the only law that stands mm. Um, and, and that has an element of truth in some of these early communities. And again, I'm, I'm thinking here of the mining towns, railroad towns, cattle towns, those areas which are, they grow really rapidly and they're quite transient and they're not populated by family groups. Um, so f- really good examples of these would be cattle towns like Dodge City, Uh, Abilene, Tombstone, places that have a real reputation for violence. Uh, And in in their early growth as towns, they do. You know, there are lots of firearms around after the Civil War. Quite a lot of them are not very accurate. You know, the the fallacy of the the duel, the high noon duel with, with two, you know, outlaw and sheriff, uh, shooting each other at the end of a long dusty road um that probably wouldn't have happened because the accuracy of these these uh these firearms was was pretty poor uh, but but there was a lot you know there were a lot of weapons around colts and winchesters as, as well produced in large numbers with um mass production techniques for the first time in the, the factory system and and certainly so you've got that you've got that homosocial male culture you've got a lot of firearms uh, contests over mining claims alcohol yeah violence is a it's a, it's a kind of a cocktail where violence takes place but a lot of that violence is uh is also kind of interpersonal violence or um fights a use of knives as, as well as as firearms and what we notice very early on though is that these towns calm down really, really quickly. Uh, so, for instance, Dodge City is created in 1873. It has a year of chaos. There are 18 gunshot deaths in the first year. And then things change really, really quickly because the local community is really keen to impose order because they want a prosperous town. They want families to move there. So they they start imposing firearms ordinances so you can't carry guns in town. Uh, so this really disabuses those Americans who want to talk about the, the, the right of an American to, to carry a gun. And this was founded in the Wild West and, and, and you should be able to take your gun into Walmart 
um, today and all of that. Uh, because actually, if you look at the history of Dodge City and uh, these other places, you see very quickly the establishment of um, of, of law against carrying of weapons um, in order to make the town safer. And of, of course, the establishment of law enforcement feeds in, into that. And... Um, and those who who are using guns as part of their everyday lives, so the cowboy, is usually usually using that weapon to fend off um, sometimes cattle rustlers, but m- more often than not coyotes or um, to 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 shoot snakes. You know, it's not cowboy versus Indian in in the usual. Uh, movie movie way so I think this this story of frontier violence is has been um it's become hugely politicized but that the historical record does not suggest that this this was a, a long-standing feature of the wild west town so um so the, the gunfight at the OK Corral and Wyatt Earp these things did happen then but they've just been blown out of proportion is that what you're arguing yeah, yeah. So these were these were exceptions rather than they're, they're ex- exceptions, and they were things that happened in the very early moments of these uh, fragmentary settlements as they start to to be created. And and then of course the the sensationalising of these incidents is picked up by Eastern newspapers, is picked up by um uh writers in the 20th century by people producing biographies for instance of of um white Earp in the in in the 1930s dodge city also it it realizes that it can really sell this violent past as a tourist allure so it it kind of remodels its boot hill cemetery into a kind of a precursory Disneyland with fake tombstones and, and such like. Um, so violence becomes a, an, an, an entertainment device, if you like, and that, that, so that history is, is rewritten for the purposes of talking about what's passed into memory. So in a way, you can glory in the violent past because you're living in the civilised present, so it's safe safe to do that and commercially um, useful as well. Can you just briefly talk about the role of Buffalo Bill in creating this, this image? Because he, he was quite an important figure in that, wasn't he? So he's, a, he's an interesting character in the story of how the West gets manufactured, if you like. So he's, um, he's, he's important because he brings authenticity to the to the folklore uh, he's he scouts for the army he is a hunter for the for the army uh, where, which is where he gets his name because he's killing buffalo to to provide for um for for troops for food and he also takes sporting parties on hunting excursions uh, so he he's he's present in those frontier years and then later on he reenacts his own story working for the army um, in a Wild West show and he kind of co-ops a, a, a colourful troop of people to, to do that with him and they, they enact moments of, of Western history as theatre but he's really keen to present this not as entertainment but as, as truth. He calls his show America's National Entertainment and, and you know, takes it all over the world, um, takes it to Hyde Park, plays in front of Queen Victoria. Uh, and he's always the, the hero of the hour, uh, although, interestingly, he, would, he refused to go head-to-head in a shooting match with Annie Oakley because he knew that she was actually much better. Um, with with firearms than him, so she starred in his his show. She's a another trick shooter, but unlike Calamity Jane, um, she she's a much more sort of conventional figure because she she wears a dress. She's very feminine. She's she's managed by her husband, so she she doesn't um, challenge 
sort of gender orthodoxy in the way that Calamity Jane does, um, except for the fact that she's a woman who's really good with a gun. And of course, that technical ability is is something that people are not expecting to see. So yeah, so Cody's a very important figure he, because he appears in in dime novels as well. He, you know, in an age before uh, film and TV, he carries that patriotic story of the West to the urban towns of the East and, and abroad, and, and and glories in it. I just find it fascinating. What why is this? Has the Wild West proved such a sort of rich source of material for? authors and above all Hollywood for you know more than a century mm. it is quite remarkable isn't it how he's done that it is it is and I I think it's it's I th- it's something to do I think with being a homegrown American story so it's you know it's it's like I, I guess Robin Hood or castles and knights and you know those those tales which have a romance of folklore around them but what what it gives additionally for americans is a sense of how that country came into being a kind of a creation story that is patriotic and triumphant and 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 has all the the key ingredients of uh of an enjoyable story because it's got heroes and villains and it's got grand landscapes and it's got adventure and it's got enough of a dose of history to give it that veneer of authenticity and so i think it was very powerful as um as a landscape of fantasy and as a landscape of of patriotism but i guess why it continues to be so powerful is is because you can rewrite that story with different heroes and different outcomes and different messages. So it continues to be relevant when you start challenging the assumptions of, of, of that patriotic narrative. And I, and I guess that's, that's how it continues to be relevant. It's also the case that in moments of, um, if you like, national crisis, Hollywood can escape to the past, can escape to the Western past and tell stories about a place which appears simpler and easier to work out. And you know who the bad people are and you know how it's going to turn out. And there's a, there's a familiarity and a, and, a, and a comfort with hiding in the 19th century. I've got to ask you this. What... what... In your opinion, what are the greatest films on the Wild West? Oh, that is such a difficult question. Such a difficult question. And I guess it depends why you're picking them. You know, are you picking them because of their cinematography or because of the message they communicate or um, because of how they contest history? But I guess some of my... I mean, I think you can't not put a John Ford Western in that list because of the way he has the landscape as an actor. So, you know, those scenes of Monument Valley, the the, the, the huge, iconic desert landscapes in the sort of ready ochre. So I would I would pick The Searchers um, as as a, an important one in, in his canon from, from 1956. And this is a story of revenge. It's a story that's um, stars John Wayne again, so that enables you to go sort of wander into his significance as a as a Western icon. And he's he's a Civil War wet, veteran looking for his adopted daughter. Um, and so it's a story about mobility, but it's a hugely problematic story about race as well. And so I think that's, that's quite... Um, you know that's a valuable one to deconstruct for what it says about the time of America in the mid twentieth century. Um, I also like the Wild Bunch from nineteen sixty nine, Sam Peckinpah directing. Um, this is a really ultra violent western. It's also set in the twentieth century, so that takes away your assumptions about when the West is located chronologically. 
it's really hard to figure out who the bad guys and the good guys are at the beginning. Um, things aren't what they seem. And, you know, very much speaks to Vietnam in its, in its recourse to violence. And I, and I think Westerns are always uh, products of their time. And so it's, it, that, it's a really stark reminder of that and in its uh, presentation of a really messy and bloody and, and violent space that's not really heroic actually um and for for the same reason and from the same time period i'd pick a little big man from 1970 that stars dustin hoffman as as jack crab the the oldest man in the world and he's recounting his his life and his life is a litany of um kind of imaginations about uh iconic western characters so he tells the journalist he's a gunslinger and um uh, he scout scouted for custer and he's the only white survivor from the little big horn and so i think i like that because it plays with um memory and fabrication um i'd also pick just to mess with the western territory i'd probably pick Chinatown from 1974, Jack Nicholson. So this is this is a very different West. This is an urban West. This is Los Angeles. This is bribery and corruption and um, uh, water politics. And yeah, so presents doesn't present the wide open spaces at all, uh, but it does really foreground water as as such an important um, resource in the West. So it's you know it's got that environmental narrative to it which I think is really important and then the last one I would pick from 1995 is The Quick and the Dead directed by Sam Raimi who's known for the Evil Dead films so uh, horror tongue-in-cheek horror and I really like this one because it stars Sharon Stone as the gunslinger so that really tests your sense of um, the gender dynamics of of, of the hero um, uh, and then the, the characters who in, inhabit that world are quite interesting because of their sort of fake legends. And, and there's, there's a fair smattering of typical tropes, but it's, it's a good watch. That was Karen Jones. Her book, Calamity, The Many Lives of Calamity Jane, is published by Yale University Press. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Join us tomorrow when Ed Caesar will be talking about a wild attempt to scale Everest. Everest.